Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. And as you're turning there, or if you're opening up your Bible app, we will have the words on the screen behind us. It's really important for us to all see that uh, this isn't something I made up. This is God's Word. But before we dive in, I just want to say thank you to whoever put the cup holder up here. Uh, After the last time I preached, I I made an offhanded comment just casually that We've, I mean, it's, it's, it's 2020, we should have a cup holder up here. And not because we're casual, we don't take the Word of God seriously, but this brother gets thirsty. I hope that's not too big of a distraction. All right, Second Chronicles chapter 16, I'm told I'm on the clock. Just kidding, I don't believe in clocks. Let's pray just one more time. Lord, thank you for gathering us together in your presence and in the presence of one another. Thank you, Lord, for our health and our safety in this country to do so. There's across the globe that can't do this right now. Meet with us this morning and help us to be changed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Up uh, towards the later third of his life, and, and we think about so many things about the king of Asa, but as Pastor Mike found out, that not a lot of us remember this guy. And admittedly, like, why would you? So many kings of Israel and Judah, not all of them are noteworthy. But things that are noteworthy is my love for my wife, Selena. When we got married almost 15 years ago, back back before I could grow the beard, gentlemen, it takes time. We would love to spend a lot of time just walking around the mall, holding hands, window shopping. Sure, we'd pick up a few things, but a lot of time it was spent just browsing. And we'd walk, and we'd always hit the same stores, too. Like, we're going to stop at Payless, Forever 21, uh, maybe Sears or Pier 1. And, you know, after a couple hours of walking and talking and just being together as a couple, you get hungry. So you slip into the food court, and there's Sabaro on the corner, as if it's always been there. Maybe you're going to grab a burger from Ruby Tuesdays. And then after that, with a belly full and your heart content, you go to the bookstore. At least that's what we did. And if any of you know me, you know I could live in a Borders. Right or, or a library, if you'd let me, if they'd actually return my phone calls and, and, and we try to set that up, I would live there. But you let your belly settle, maybe you grab a, a mocha frap and you browse the books and you have them. But of course, on your way home, you got to stop by Blockbuster and pick up some DVDs because date day is actually going to be all weekend long. And then we had kids. And so a lot of our time started being spent more at Babies R Us and Toys R Us and And listen, we love everybody, but this is also the time, and you guys will know this, as you have young kids, people love to give advice, even unsolicited advice. And that's around the time that everyone wants to let you know, hey, mom and dad, have you ever heard of Old Country Buffet? Like, there's something there for everyone, and like, they've got their champions, right? Like, they will die on this hill. OCB is the place to be. Mom and dad can have their semi-decent steak. I guess that's what it is. But kids get mac and cheese. Uh, And Everly, you're going to have chicken nuggets if you want. And so, I reminisce and we think about all these things, but what do all those stores and restaurants have in common? They coasted. They let the foot up off the gas and they stopped innovating. They stopped caring about the customer experience and they died. They, they all took their foot up off the pedal. And, and, you know, it's easy to blame, right? We can say, like, what happened? Like, what specifically did they do? And all of us could easily name Netflix, Amazon, Ikea. End of story. 
But hang on, that's, like, that's way too easy. We've got to peel back the layers here and find out what really happens. See a very startling trend that's a little bit similar to what we do. We get complacent. We rest on our laurels. We start to believe that our past success is going to prevent future failure. We believe that the hard work we did yesterday is going to guarantee an easy road to victory and success going forward. And that's not actually what happens. And if that doesn't startle you, then, then just hang on, buckle up, because you're going to be startled here shortly because this is true, not just in business, but in your own personal walk with Christ. If you're trusting in what you did last week, last year, whatever, and you just start to coast and stop trying so hard to be holy, the devil will ruin you. We can learn a lot from Asa here. He made a lot of boneheaded mistakes that we're going to uncover. And, and, and when I say boneheaded mistakes, I mean these dwarf the boneheaded mistake that Blockbuster made in 2000 when they passed on the opportunity to buy Netflix. Like, who does that, right? Like, if only we could roll the clock back, I'm sure they'd like to have that one back. Just like Toys R Us and borders and things like that, Asa's undoing really could have been prevented if only he wouldn't have placed so much success in himself. If only he would have stayed committed to obedience and gospel truth. But, but what does all of this teach us along the way? It's easy to just say, hey, this guy was a not good guy. He made mistakes. He, he took his foot off the pedal. But, but that doesn't really help us so much. So we have to keep on digging. And if you look here, we're going to read and we're going to find out quite a bit about what happened to King Asa here. So 2 Chronicles chapter 16. Let's go ahead and read and, and dive in and find out what we see here. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending you silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Aijon, Dan, Abelmaim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had been building. And with them he built Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at that same time. Then if we drop down to verse 12, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, 
but sought help from physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 41st year of his reign. We see quite a bit here, right now in verse 2, that relying on your past success can actually lead to compromising your convictions. But for you to backslide, there must have been forward progress. For you to compromise your convictions, you must have have firmly held something at one time. And if you were chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, you're going to see that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek the Lord. Wiping out idolatry is no easy task, and yet this man persisted. He was very fervent and compassionate, but he had no other choice but to obey God and destroy sin wherever he saw it. And then later in chapter 15, you read about how King Asa removed the queen mother from her position of power and authority. He took his grandmother's nasty image that she made to Asherah, and he chopped it down and burned it. Talk about conviction. He's not even taking it easy on Granny. He's like, man, listen, your, your cookies are awesome. Granny, I love you, but this has got to go. He's got to get rid of it. He is not playing games here. He is firm that sin has to go. But then we start to read here how when the other king starts to build his Berlin Wall of sorts and it's going to prevent information and it's going to prevent news and supplies and goods come down to the south, he gets soft on sin. He starts to get self Worry. He's so concerned about what's going to happen to him in this moment. And instead of trusting God, his his immediate reaction is instead to silence his conscience. And then he starts to plot and scheme. And he comes up with this strategic military alliance that he wants to forge with a Gentile. A man who once was so convicted by the holiness of God that he was destroying his grandmother's temple or uh, uh, Ashropole, rather, is now someone who's compromising his convictions. He's stealing from the temple of the Lord, and he's taking these temple treasures to forge a military alliance with a pagan king. But what else do we see growing weak here? It's not just these things. If you take a look at the second half of verse 2, with this chest full of treasure, Asa sets out to bribe his way into the new military alliance with the pagan king Ben-Hadad. Now, the Asa of old would have never done this. And we know this because, again, if you read through chapter 14, you see this great man of conviction. He knows better than to get in bed with the enemy. He knows better than to trust in his own schemes and in his own strength. Instead, he knows he has to trust God. Now, on the surface, it might not look so bad. And I think we think that about a lot of things far too often. Jason, hold up. Hang on, man. He... He had a momentary lapse of judgment. He saw the enemy was getting five to six miles away. He, he rightly so wanted to protect his people like a good leader should. And he knee-jerk reaction, sure, wasn't the greatest. You know, armchair quarterback here. Would he have done it differently if he had the chance again? Sure. It's not so bad, though. Like, let's cut this guy some slack. But, guys, it's not so easy. It's not so easy to just say that because... When you start to dig just a little bit deeper, remove some of these layers, you're going to find some very startling truths here. Ben-Hadad means son of Hadad. Hadad is the proper name for the God we refer to as Baal. So we're not really just saying that he's teaming up with this Gentile king. We're saying he's forging an alliance and, 
and committing to this pact, this covenant, with a pagan god. This, this is a breach of faith that is severe. His political scheming is essentially a confession to all who can see and hear that Yahweh is not as powerful as Baal. In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, death is knocking on Asa's door. This entire Ethiopian army comes one million strong in 300 chariots. Asa gets his team, a puny 580,000 guys. Battle lines are drawn. If he's going to square up, he doesn't. He cries out to God and he says, Oh Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, oh Lord, our God's multitude. Oh Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa. What a change. To see a guy a chapter or two before literally staring death in the face and just throwing up his hands and be like, Lord, this is on you, man. You got to take this. I can't. I trust in you. To now we have this guy saying, Psh, man, I got this. Don't flex on me. I'll squash you. I got this. What a radical change. How do, how do you slip so far? How do we slip so far? Because we're not too much different from Asa. Why do we need accounts like this in the Bible? Why is this here? Like, God could have been perfectly fine and just and not told us of this massive failure on Asa's part. But I challenge you, the reason we have this is because I identify with his foolishness. And I think you do too. You know, Spurgeon once remarked that believers frequently behave worse in little trials than in great ones. And I wish that weren't true. But I fear that it is. It really case in point. At the beginning of this coronavirus pandemic, and there's like half the world on fire between California and Australia, and, and just the, the pandemic, and everyone doesn't even know what we know now, and everyone's fearful. We all struggle to take our own advice at least once. You, if you've ever come to me and asked me to pray for you or you've come with me and shared a prayer request, chances are I've tried to remind you of the sovereignty of God. That He is supreme. He doesn't need permission. He knows all, has power over all, and that this, as much as this hurts right now, I promise you on the other side of the valley, you will be a better reflection of Christ. And that's what I've tried to remind you, that this does not surprise God. And as much as I love that attribute of God, sometimes I'm a complete failure at remembering that in my own life. So the coronavirus pandemic is coming up. We've got half the world on fire, and I'm in the kitchen with my wife, and she makes a comment about how it seems like it's easier for me to trust God when the world is burning than it is when the van makes a weird noise. Or I'm told my kids need braces. Like, who's going to pay for this? Or when you have an unexpected home repair. Gut check. She's right. As much as I cling to the sovereignty of God, that is my hope. That no matter what happens to me, I am his and I'm going to be okay. 
That's the thing that I, I preach most often to my kids, my friends, anyone who will listen. The sovereignty of God is one of the most amazing things about our Savior. And yet when life throws me curveballs, my convictions crumble. And, I, and we don't know why, right? Like, how is it that I can sit here and say, the world's on fire, there's a pandemic, people are losing their jobs, there's all of this going on with my family personally, and I'm just like, not my problem. Like, this is above my pay grade, I have no business trying to figure this one out. I have got no business in that arena. And yet, when it's the smaller things in life, the, the everyday stuff, flat tire, the dog sick, got a rash, whatever, I freak out way more often than I would like to admit. I, I start to figure out, what do I need to do to fix this? Because somehow I believe the lie that this is on me and me alone. I'm the man of the house. I have to fix this. I've got a plot. I've got a scheme. I've got to make some sort of alliance with somebody who knows how to fix this thing. And my convictions crumble because I know the truth. I just forget to believe it. I forget to remind myself. And what does that lead to ultimately? Maybe you've been there. You get that, that ball of stress that, that just knots up right here, and it's about the size of a cantaloupe, and I don't know how worse it could get because cantaloupe is disgusting. Like That's like the worst thing. And we've got all of this undue stress because we start to believe that somehow we're in control. Like We are supposed to have this. Now, don't get me wrong, guys. Like There is a lot to be said for personal responsibility. We do need to be prudent. We need to make sure that we are maintaining our stuff and we're prepared for when things go wrong. But that doesn't mean it's on you. Look around the room. This is your family. We've got you. And guess what? Even if we don't, because what you need is something we can't deliver, we serve an amazing God. If only Asa would have remembered that. If only he would have taken just one split second and instead of rushing headfirst into sin, robbing the temple treasures, trying to do this, this shady backdoor deal with another king, if he would have just did what he did a chapter or two before and cried out to God for help. You know, none of us are immune to relapse. You know what I mean? We're like, all of a sudden you are sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, how did I get here? Like, I know better than this. Why would I ever have done that? I know better than this. I expect more from my kids. I expect more from my coworkers. How am I here? Like, I've been saved nearly 15 years. How is this still a problem in my life? And if you've never been there where you're asking yourself, how did I just do that? How did I just say that? Then you're either a recent convert or you're lying. You take your pick. None of us are immune to relapse. And we know the track record of Satan, right? Because time and again, he will take an inch that you give him and he will run with it and get every last drop he can get out of it. And don't even pretend for a minute like you might be thinking, okay, Jason, yeah, sure, buddy, I might, I might have a relapse moment and I'm going to say something I shouldn't or I won't help when I know I should have. But I'm not going to like train my life like David and I'm not going to do the, the bad stuff that Asa did. I'm not going to do any serious sins as if there were such a thing. All sin is serious, and we are all capable of the most vile, the most wicked things possible. It's for the grace of God you haven't train wrecked your own faith right now. It's by the grace of God that any of us are even allowed to come up here and share the gospel with you because ultimately none of us are qualified. Our qualifications come through Christ and Christ alone. 
Now listen, you might be thinking, okay, so you're right, I do some bad stuff, but it's nothing crazy, it's nothing that, that can't easily be fixed, nothing that would ever bring shame. I'm not cheating on my wife, I'm not trying to run off with the offering box back there, I'm, I'm not you know, blackmailing people at work. Maybe you're tempted to do those unspeakable things. If, if in a perfect world, in your perfect sinful world, you would never get caught, would you do it? I mean, I'm sure we've all had those thoughts. If I knew I could get away with it, would I do this to advance my career? Would I do this to be able to afford that house? If no one would ever know. And see, these are the things that Satan uses to pull us away from God. But maybe you're feeling really good right now because that's not you. Maybe you're thinking you're feeling pretty good right now because in your fight against sin, you've got a lot more W's than you have L's. And if you think about the past six weeks, your amount of lust or anger or rage or slandering our presidential candidates, maybe you're not doing so bad. And so you start to get just a little bit of pride, and then what happens? You take your foot up off the gas. You coast. You don't try as hard to fight those Satan sins. You don't, you don't look for those accountability partners to hold you to the fire when you need to. You don't ask for prayer like you used to about that specific sin because you know it's such a traumatic thing for you to fight because you've won and lost and you felt the pain of that battle. Maybe you no longer look for those books or those podcasts to help you strengthen up your defenses to make sure you can live a victorious Christian life. And instead, we, we think we've got this. I've mastered this sin. That dragon has been slain. I've, I've won. I've won the victory. Let me warn you now, don't get cocky. Don't get cocky. Instead, instead of coasting, Put your foot down, pedal to the metal. Don't ever stop. Don't ever let up. Don't turn the heat down on your convictions. Don't loosen your grip. You've got to hang on for dear life because sin will destroy us. Instead, when we're faced with problems in life and we have that temptation to sin, whether or not we think we're going to get caught or not, the Bible tells us that sin will find us out. Instead, when life throws us problems and we're tempted to lose our convictions, when we're enticed to be a little bit more lax or compromise here in just this one small area, we tell ourselves, instead, trust in the wisdom of Solomon when he wrote, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Keep your faith in the power and loving God, not your own strength, not your own schemes. Now, what we've seen in Asa's past in chapter 14 and in his present here in 16.2, it teaches us again that trusting in our past success can lead to compromising convictions. And in verse 3, we learn about Asa's misplaced trust. So he's got this this box full of stolen goods, right? And he's going to send this off to Ben-Hadad. And, and what does he slip inside? There's a note, right? There's like a note inside the teapot. There's a note inside this chest. And he plays the covenant card. And he says, hey, man, listen, we've got a covenant, you and I, going back a generation to our dads. So break it off with Basha of Israel. And now you're my new BFF. we got to do this, all right? You guys realize how ridiculous that is? That's like the Christian man 
telling his mistress, hey, go break it off with your fiance because we are in a relationship. Like, are you kidding me right now? What kind of absurdity is this? Here is someone who represents the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a leader of God's people, and he's stealing from the temple and invoking this covenant and in the process saying, hey, go break your other covenant. Like, how slimy is that? But why? Why did he play the covenant card? I'm telling you, it's because he knew that that would seal the deal. He put all of his eggs in the covenant basket. Bless you, Brother Mike. He could have went one of two other routes, right? We've all heard of monkey to do something. You can either beat it or threaten it, or you can dangle a carrot in front, and, and they'll want to do something because of the reward at the end. And Asa didn't do this. He didn't promise more treasures for helping. He didn't threaten to go sabotage them if they didn't help. He just said, hey, man, we've got a covenant. I'm, I'm, this is what I'm putting all of my eggs, and I'm putting my stake in this covenant. Now break it off with him, and let's go do this. Asa's trusting, you can see this, right? Asa's trusting in his political maneuvers and not God. And the thing we can take away from this is that a covenant with man will never amount to anything compared to a covenant with God. And that's the tragedy of this whole situation with Asa. Because Asa's seen the power of God. But, you know, this isn't the first time Scripture shows us people misplacing their trust and putting it into a covenant with man. Think back to the Gibeonites. All of Israel was commanded under the leadership of Joshua, go and disperse the people. Like, get rid of all the pagans who are in the land. This is the promised land. This is yours. Get rid of everyone else. And the Gibeonites catch wind of this. And what do they do? Do they, do they forsake all of their idols? Do they, do they cast themselves on the throne of grace and beg for forgiveness and mercy for not obeying God? No, of course not. Or else I wouldn't use that as an illustration. It was so bad, not even goodwill will take them. And they look every part of the far-off traveler that they're portraying themselves to be. So now they're trusting that because they look like a far-off traveler and not the enemy, when they go to Joshua and say, hey, bro, don't kill us. We're not your enemy. We're not even from here. We just happen to be crossing through. Just be nice to us. Let's have this treaty. Let's make a covenant. And he does. And the Gibeonites are like, woohoo, this is awesome. Not going to die today. Yes. But it's not too far later that Joshua realized he's been had. And as a man of God, he doesn't do what a lot of us think he probably would have been right to do, just cut him down for lying. But instead, he says, all right, listen, you guys pulled one over on me, but I'm a man of God. I'm not going to put you to death. But from here on out, you and your people are going to be forced into manual labor. Misplaced trust in a covenant with man led to not ultimate victory, but a really crummy life. And again, so we get back to this idea of Asa misplacing his trust in this covenant with the king Ben-Hadad. And it's tragic because he already had a covenant with God that God would protect Judah. He's already seen it against the Ethiopians. What is he doing here? He's completely forsaken. And, and it's so odd that we would find a man of Asa's status and his conviction in this predicament. Because in chapter 15, we read how people were fleeing the northern kingdom of Israel to go into Judah. 
because Israel was apostate and the mark that the Lord was using King Asa was evident for everyone to see. He's amassing large amounts of people because the banner of the Lord is shining brightly in Judah. That's the covenant that matters. God and man, that's the covenant that we ought to put our trust in because no other covenant we have is going to save us. But it's the one that reminds us and tells us because you are a child of God. By grace, through faith, you have been saved. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the only covenant that matters. But Asa, he's trying to wheel and deal here, so he's going to King Ben-Hadad, and he's hoping that this guy is more trustworthy than himself. They say once a cheater, always a cheater. You know, I'm not getting into that, but here you are. You're going to put your trust in a guy who you're expecting to break covenant. He's an oath breaker. He's hoping that he's trustworthy. Ferdinand Magellan was somebody who was no stranger to being trustworthy or trying to get other people to believe that he was trustworthy. You might know this. He was the leader of the Spanish expedition to the East Indies in 1519, which resulted in the first circumnavigation of the globe. And while his, his journey, and of course, probably took twice as long to actually get approval, it certainly was no overnight success. He had to convince his royal majesty that he could do what no man had done before. He had to convince his royal majesty that he could do the impossible. Eventually, he got approval, and he got five ships and enough foodstuffs to last for a two-year voyage. What we know of Magellan, thanks to Pigfetta, who recorded everything, is that his navigational skills were second to none. That dude was a beast on the water, but it's, it's his leadership style that rocks the boat. You guys see what I did there? It's too early? Okay. His leadership style was not the greatest. He's not going to be writing a bestseller book anytime soon. Uh, he was a dictator. On his ship, he ruled with an iron fist, and he was a bit of a jerk. And as you can imagine, that led to several mutinies during his voyage. But at the end of the day, he always commanded respect, and for the most part, after he calmed some people down, got their trust back that he knew what he was doing, and that by trusting in him, he would be successful. Now, while he's on this, this mission to, to circumnavigate the globe, get to the East Indies, he's, he's also converting a lot of people. Now, I use that word very, very loosely. Uh, Magellan was very devout in his faith and wanted to make sure that if you had never heard of all of their patron saints and their Catholic God, that you became a Christian. And a lot of times he's strong on people into converting uh, but some of them gladly received new Christian names like village leader and chieftain Raja Humaban. He accepted the new Christian name. He offered gifts and supplies and food and hospitality to all of Magellan's men. And Magellan did this time and again, very successful if you go strictly by the numbers. But one day he comes up against another chieftain who's not going to play ball. Chief Lapu-Lapu of Mokden wants nothing to do with Magellan or his god. And he tells him as such. Well, Magellan doesn't really take that so nice. He, he doesn't really care what you think you will convert. And so he threatens him. He says, listen, I'm going to come back tomorrow with sword and shield, crossbow and battle axe. I'm coming back with firepower. Make your decision wisely. And then you think about this. He's putting his trust ultimately in modern and advanced weaponry and armor. And how could you blame the guy? 
Like seriously, what's a bunch of fire-hardened sticks and stones going to do against me? I'm covered head to toe in armor. So Magellan goes the next day. He's got his crew, and it's a hard-fought battle just to get to the island. And they're hurling sticks and stones and fire-hardened bamboo spears, and Magellan catches one with his face. Trusting in anything but God is just as treacherous as it was for Magellan that day. Now listen, it might not hit you in the heat of battle, but I promise you it will get you. Think about the surviving members. After the battle of Mokden's over, the chief Raja Humaban, the guy who was really excited and accepted gladly the new Christian name and offered uh, offerings and sacrifices and, and things like that for this new, the new captain and his family, he invites them to a huge feast and he poisons them. Misplaced trust strikes again. Don't trust yourself, Christian. Don't trust what you did yesterday. Don't trust how you beat addiction six years ago. Again, praise God for it, right? But don't trust that you beat it six years ago. This is an ongoing fight. Addicts know this all too well. You're never recovered. You're just only battling, and you're one day more sober. But for the rest of us who maybe aren't addicts, but instead we occasionally flip the bird in traffic or we curse out the neighbor because their music's too loud or whatever our secret thing is. We always think we've got this under control. Don't trust yourself, Christian. Trust in God. Trust in him. going to leave you. That's why it's so important for us to hide God's word in our heart because in the battle, we need this to protect us and guide us. So we know that past success can lead to compromising convictions, and we know that misplaced trust is very precarious and tragic. But we also learn that past success can lead to spurning correction. Proverbs is rife with cautionary tales about the idiot or the fool or the foolish man who says, I don't want any of that, who rejects correction, who thinks that they've got it all figured out so they don't need your advice, but thanks anyway. It looks like the alliance with Judas, uh, with Judas King's alliance with the king uh, Ben-Hadad, it looks like it actually paid off, right? Because the city is no longer being built. Ram is now deserted because king of Israel went away. They have all of these resources they can use to build whatever they want. And you would maybe think that you could say, well, all's well that ends well, right? Wrong. Verse 7, enter the prophet of God introduces us to Ben, uh, sorry, uh, prophet Hanani, who, like Nathan Haddam, had the joyous task of going to the king and scolding him. If there's a less envious position in the Bible, I don't know what it is. Like, how are you going to go to the man of God, the leader of a nation, and be like, hey, man, um, that was sin, and you need to repent? I can't imagine that any of those guys <laughs> enjoyed the work they did in that moment. Uh, but they trusted God, right? So that's good. So he goes, Hanani goes and he's talking to King Asa and he's telling him how foolish he was. He's, he's telling him that he trusted in himself when he should have trusted God. And like, how foolish are you considering that God had gifted you victory over the Ethiopians? Oh, and by the way, I know God's provided decades of peace for you, but now there's going to be wars. And King Asa responds about as well as you'd expect. He throws a temper tantrum. 
He throws the prophet in jail, and he takes it out on his loyal subjects. When we're confronted with our own sin, it's wise for us to be humble and repent. Let God know we're sorry. Just tell him how bad we are. And he is righteous and just to forgive us. But you might be thinking, come on, Jason, like that guy's not really all that wicked. Like, again, momentary lapse in judgment. We've all been there. We've all done something we wish we could have taken back. Maybe we should cut him some slack because maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. Like, he was just trying to protect God's people. But what does Paul say in Romans 14 23? Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The author of Hebrews adds to that, without faith is it, impossible, it is impossible to please God. Therefore, where there's no faith, there is no pleasing God. Asa was wicked and rotten to the core. And even if you think that Asa just had a momentary lapse in judgment, and I really shouldn't be so harsh on him, you've got to draw the line and say, once you start attacking the man of God, you've crossed the line. Even if we can overlook everything else, like robbing the temple treasures and trusting in strategic military alliances that he's kind of birthing out of thin air, instead of trusting God, you cross a line when you attack the prophet of God. Fast forward a few years later, Asa is getting up there in years and he's got disease in his feet. Does he pray to God and ask for healing? Nope. Instead, he gets doctors. Please do not hear me saying going to a doctor is bad. That's not the point of this text. What we're saying is that the scripture is very clear that our creator created us. And if there's sin or failings in our body, we go to him first. And Israel, Israel knew this. Judah knew this way more than we do because in their worldview, they associated disease and illness and sickness with being reprimanded for sin. So King Asaph, he's got this disease in his feet. He knows. He knows what this is all about. Now, that's not to say that if you're sick today, you're in some nasty sin, but we are saying here in Asaph's time, the way Israelites would have understood this, if you have disease in your feet, you're likely being chastised, so he would have known that the remedy comes from the king in heaven, not in doctors. But instead of crying out to the great physician, he gives God the cold shoulder and gives the silent treatment. And I hope you've learned this already. I hope that if, if, if you've never thought about it this way before, I hope that today is the day you get it. I hope you know that the silent treatment and the cold shoulder is foolish. But I also hope you know if, if you play that game, whether it's with your spouse, your parents, you can always stop. Teens. No matter how bad you've blown it, you can always talk to your parents. Husbands, wives, no matter how stupid the argument, no matter how cruel and hurtful your words were, you can always talk to your spouse and say sorry. Brothers and sisters, or if we have someone here who's not yet saved, no matter how wicked you are, no matter how stinking and steaming the pile of messes that you're in right now with your sin, you can always go to God and ask for forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, don't give God the cold shoulder. Don't play the silent game with him. It's not worth it. There was a husband and a wife that had a, a heated battle. Some choice words were exchanged. 
and they gave each other the cold shoulder. Uh, and a couple days later, the husband realized he, he was in, in, in quite a bit of trouble because his phone had been acting up, so the alarm wasn't quite working after the phone slipped off the counter a couple nights ago. But he's got to catch a flight in the morning, got to fly to Boston to meet a client. And so instead of breaking silence with his wife, because that would concede victory to her, and he's never going to let that happen, he writes a little note to her and says, please wake me at 5 a.m. So the next morning he wakes up. It's well after nine. He's fuming. Plane's gone. Deal is not going to get done with this client. And he's about to go find his wife and give her a piece of his mind until he notices a little slip of paper on his bedstand. Says, wake up. It's 5 a.m. And some of you are thinking, that serves him right. He's a jerk. And we might be thinking, like, oh, my goodness, if my wife were that petty, like, Pastor Daniel would be having counseling sessions with us this week when he's back from vacation, like, because that is not acceptable. Like, how are you going to betray me like that? Like, yeah, we can fight, but you still have to, like, we're a team. But how easy is it for us to laugh at that, but yet it's so difficult for life? We are the petty jerk. Like, we've all blown it. And if you're not in the midst of blowing it, now you're on your way, or maybe you're just coming off of having blown it. That is the Christian life. You obey, you mess up, and God forgives you when you call out. And then you make some progress again, and you fall and stumble again. But you get back up, and you repent, and you keep on making forward progress. But when someone comes to us with scripture and they're trying to point out some blind spots in our life, in brotherly and sisterly love, discreetly, even if it's just one-on-one and no one can hear and they're trying to call you on some of your garbage that you need to get straight with God, what happens? The claws come out. We bare our fangs. We get all nasty. The hair on our neck bristles and we lash out. How dare you come at me with this? Get the plank out of your own eye first, bro. I'm so much better than I used to be. You've got no business trying to come at me like this. And we get so self-righteous and heated because we are so self-righteous. We believe that we are untouchable. That just because you see that I've got some stuff i got to de- deal with, that, that somehow that prevents anyone from touching me because of everything else I do. Like, do you not realize how much I serve in this church? Have you never seen how much I give? Like, how dare you come at me like this? We can get so self-righteous that when someone comes to us, we act no better than King Asa. And if you had the authority to throw Daniel in jail, you would have done it already because I know he stepped on your toes because he preaches the gospel. And that hurts our pride and our sin. We believe that because we've defeated sins in the past that we don't need any help or correction along the way. We believe that because of our win-loss column having so many more W's that we're actually in the fast track to conquering in this and then we're going to take the next one and do the same thing. Just like Asa. But unlike Asa, we don't have to finish our course at odds with God. We don't have to finish finish our course having not spoken to God for years. And see, we can run to Jesus and ask for his mercy. Mercy that he paid for with his own innocent blood. Mercy that washes away our sin and our guilt. Mercy that renews each day. Mercy that is his and his alone to give. And it's his mercy that gives us the strength today that rejects the lie that Satan would have you believe that you are okay on your own. 
And that because you were good yesterday, you're guaranteed an easy road the rest of your life. And that because right now you are a good standing Christian, that you're never going to train wreck your faith. Past success does not prevent future failure, brothers and sisters. And if we can't see this in Asa's life, then we're likely to see it in ours. It's once we realize just how much like Asa we are that we can actually see the advice here in Scripture. Like I said, the reason we need stuff like this in the Bible, stories of people who used to have a firm grasp on their convictions, who did a lot for God, and they start to crumble, it's because I identify with that foolishness, and I think you do too. And once we can accept that and believe it, like we realize, I am no better than Asa, then we can see the truth here. We can see the advice that God's giving us between the lines. It's when we can, can answer the charge against us about our sin and we realize, you know what, you're right. I do need to work on that. Thank you for pointing that out to me. Would you be my accountability partner? Will you continue to pray for me and check in on me? I'm giving you permission to send me a text or a phone call and ask me that very hard question. And I'll do you one better. I give you the permission to ask me twice because I know if I can dance around the answer, I will. I'll give you a half-truth because I know who I am. But I give you permission that even if I don't like it, even if I know it pains you to ask me about how I'm doing in this area, we're still going to be friends, even if it's not hard. Or sorry, even if it's not easy. It's because we are more righteous and never more righteous when we confess that we have no righteousness to begin with. And that any righteousness that's in our account was actually gifted to us. And you know, speaking of gifts, the, one of the greatest places still, in my opinion, to get a gift is in the mall. And I still like to walk around the mall with Selena, holding hands. We've got our kids with us now. And then anyone can get a gift card. And for some people, that is the perfect gift. I get it. But for everyone else, we like to actually go find something that really speaks to me, whatever that means, that oh, she's going to love this. And I'm going to get to see it and find out. Like, this is a great gift. And, and the great thing about walking around the mall is that the memories are still there, and in fact, they've only increased. And I'm sure my kids never get bored about hearing about our, our romantic high school dates walking around the mall uh, for the millionth time. Uh, but now again, as a, as a dad with teenagers, I'm going into stores that I never thought I'd go in. And there are other stores that I go in that I haven't been in since I was their age. And as if it's always been there is the Sabaros in most malls in the Midwest. But a constant in a sea of change, it is not. You see, back in 2011 and 2014, they declared bankruptcy. And yet they're still standing. But they're standing because they did what others wouldn't. They cried out for help. Now, they cried out for help in a way, in the form of a collaboration of private equity firms that transformed the company's image. And so they're allowed to continue today because they cried out for help. They admitted their failures. They were willing to change and, and get on the right track. You know, 2 Chronicles 16.9 tells us that the Lord supports those whose heart is completely his. And we have to understand that righteousness today does not guarantee righteousness tomorrow. Beginning well does not mean ending well. Past success does not prevent future failure. But it may mean compromising your convictions, misplaced trust, and rejecting criticism. Judas Iscariot began as an apostle. 
Demas began as an apostolic healer. And we know what happened to these guys. Asa began as a king on fire for God, removing sin and idolatry everywhere he saw it, going so far as to remove his grandmother, queen mother, and burning her Asherah poles. But that didn't prevent the tragic ending. Now, with all of that said, I don't want to leave you here in despair. I don't want you thinking, I've either got to get right now or I'm doomed because we have Jesus, right? We've got the gospel, the good news. This is what gives us joy in our heart because Jesus is faithful even when we are not. Jesus is faithful when we doubt. Jesus walks the path when we blaze convictions, when we start to compromise and crumble. And Jesus saves us when we can't save ourselves. You and I can cry out to Jesus today to right the ship because we're drifting. We can cry out to Jesus today to have us push forward even harder against our battle with sin. And I don't care if this is your first time crying out to Jesus because you need salvation and you can't do it on your own, or if this is the 175th millionth time, that's hyperbole, because Jesus wants to hear from you. I don't care how many times you've cried out to God. He never gets tired of hearing from you. You can always cry out to God. And I hope you know that when we cry out to Jesus, we trust in the Father above, the power of the gospel comes down. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for this time together in your word. I pray, Lord, that we would learn the lesson that King Asa appeared not to. Lord, that what we did yesterday and all of our good deeds and our past accomplishments and our victories over sin in the past don't stop us from falling into sin tomorrow. I pray, Lord, that you and you alone would strengthen us and give us cause to hope in your name. Lord, that you would forgive us when we cry out to you and that you would help us to see that trusting in you and you alone is what we're all called to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together, respond with song, Jesus is better.